I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the text for this morning's message, Romans 8, verses 28 through 32. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And now, Father, we look to you for your help again for the ministry of the word that it would be faithful to the scriptures that it would have an anointing by the Holy Spirit for the conversion of sinners and the strengthening of saints and the healing of the sick the reconciling of the estranged the encouraging of the downcast the comfort of the lonely the emboldening of the timid and the empowering and mobilizing of your people for witness and for justice. So, Father, our hopes and our dreams for worship and the word are big and beyond human ability. Would you come now as you have come and speak? And call in Jesus' name. Amen. The promise that God works all things together for good in verse 28 of what David just read to us is so sweeping and so unbelievable and so weighty that the Apostle Paul feels the necessity, rightly so, to put under it a massive, solid, firm, unshakable foundation to help us believe it and to bring it to pass. In fact, all the rest of chapter 8, from verse 28 on, all the rest of chapter 8 is Paul's attempt to do that. To build a foundation for verse 28. To build a foundation under the confidence of his people in this room. That all things will work together for your good. That is not an easy promise to believe. Nor is it an easy promise to bring to pass. It takes a massive divine work to ensure And bring to pass that promise in our lives. And so all the rest of chapter 8 is a foundation, a support, a warrant, a description of how God can, in fact, promise it and bring it to pass. This is a message for believers. And like all messages for believers, it's a message for unbelievers. It's a message for believers so that you will... Be strong 
in your confidence in Romans 8, 28. This promise ought to unleash a believer lifestyle that is so radical and so wild and crazy and wonderful in its love and mission and evangelism that the world would be amazed. And it's a message for unbelievers because I want you to see that there's so much foundation under this promise to strengthen believers that you would want to be included in it. There's so much warrant for its truth. There's so much foundation and support for its coming true that to be outside of it would be frightening to you and stupid. And that you would want to say, well, if that's true, if all things could work together for me, then I want in. So it's for believers and it's for unbelievers. I really hope that the place where I ended last Sunday out on the parking lot would be the place where believers would go this morning. That is, this text is a summons to take risks. This text is a summons to look at the possibilities of evangelism, look at the possibilities of missions, look at the possibilities of racial justice or all the perils of love in our culture and do it. (laughs) Because every cost that you might encounter that would seem negative is going to work together for your good. That's the power of this text. This is not a text to encourage Christians to fold your arms, cross your legs, and enjoy God's blessings while the world goes to hell. That's not what this text is about. This text is a battle cry. It's a trumpet call to do what all the people have done down through the ages who've really believed it. Namely, everything that you encounter in the dangerous pathway of love is going to work for your good. So get on the path and take some risks. That's the point of the text. I hope you'll all listen to this third message. And if you think you're jumping in the middle, you are. Actually, you're two-thirds late. But I think you'll be able to get it. Two weeks ago, I addressed the words to those who love God in verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God. And we talked about what loving God means and why that's a quality you have to have in order for this promise to be true. Last week, we focused on the promise itself. All things work together for good. Not just the easy things or the good things, but the hard things and the bad things. Some of you will remember Malcolm Muggridge. He died in 1990. He was converted later in life and was a British journalist and wrote books after his conversion that tried to give an account for how God got a hold of him. And I want to quote a paragraph from Malcolm Muggeridge because it so powerfully underscores that statement, the bad things work together for good, not just the good things. In fact, I'll let him say it. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. 
Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal or trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross of Christ signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. This will only make sense to those of you who have lived long enough to escape from the dream world of painlessness. And the longer you live in Christ, the more you will know that is true. You know as well as I, nobody has ever said the deepest lessons I have ever learned have been on the sunny days. I've never in my life heard anybody say that. Not once. Everybody knows that we go deep with God when we are tried like gold. So, all things, including the bad things, work for good. That was last Sunday's message. Now we're on a third and last message on this verse. And it is the words... To those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there are two things that must be true of you if you are to enjoy this promise. One, you must love God. And two, you must be called according to his purpose. Those are not two groups of people. Like one group loves God and all things work together for their good. And another group does not love God, but they're called according to his purpose and all things work together for their good. That's not the way to read this verse. These are one group, one kind of people. Two things are true of them. They love God and they are called according to his purpose. And for those people alone, all things work together for good. If you're not in that group, things work together for your bad and your ultimate bad. If you don't love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, my question to start with is, why did he choose to say these two qualifications? Now, there are answers to this question that I cannot take time to give. Like, why did he say for those who love God instead of those who trust God? I'm going to leave that one aside and you can ponder it. I want to ask, why two and not one? Why not just for those who love God, everything works together for good? Or for those who are called, everything works together for good. Why these two brought together? And here's my attempt at an answer. Had he only said, All things will work together for good if you love God. It would seem to make a massive, sweeping, majestic, heavy, seemingly unbelievable promise stand on very flimsy ground, namely me. 
Loving God is something I do in my heart. And my heart is fickle and weak. And so you're going to base this massive promise that requires incredible divine energy in the world on me. It's like, it's like basing a mountain on a marshmallow. It will not hold up. I can't bear the weight of saying I'm the one who must be good enough to make this promise stick. So, Paul adds, this promise will come true for people, not just who love God, but who are called according to his purpose. Now, here we have God's work. And we have something divine and Massive and powerful and deep and strong. And so I ask, what, why didn't he just say that? Why didn't he just say all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose? And now we've got a, a big mountain under the mountain. And the reason, I think, is because if he had only said that, we would be left asking how do I know if I'm in the group? How do I know if I'm called? How do I know if I'm included in the called according to his purpose? And so he doesn't just give us the objective divine foundation. He also gives us the subjective human foundation, which is the evidence of the divine foundation so that you can know you're called. Do you love God? In Jesus Christ, for all that he is for you, you're called. Because you wouldn't if you weren't called. There are contrasts here. Our love is subjective. God's call is objective, outside of me. Our love is our act. God's call is his act. Our love is an effect, and God's call is the cause. So already now, just in this little phrase in verse 28, he's beginning to build the massive foundation for the promise that will be built to the end of the chapter. There is under this promise a divine work called calling, and that calling accords with a divine Purpose and the purposes of God stand. We've got massive foundation under this promise, and we need to linger now over this first description of the foundation, namely the call of God. So I have two questions I want to try to answer concerning the call of God. One, what happens when a person is called? You need to know what happened to you. So that you can say, I'm called. You know, there, there's a language here that we don't use very much. We have, we have our own favorite evangelical way of talking about conversion. I'm saved, or I'm redeemed, or I'm a Christian, or I'm a believer. Hardly anybody says, I'm called. Praise God, I've been called. I'm among the called. Hardly anybody talks that way. Paul uses it all over the place. 
So the first question is, what happens when we're called? And the second is, what's the effect of the calling long term if you're called? So let's take question number one. What happens when a person is called? I'll put, I'll put it in a sentence and then we'll unpack it. God calls a person to Christ by bringing them into contact with the gospel of Jesus and making their dead hearts alive so that they hear the gospel as irresistibly true and beautiful. I'll say it again. God calls a person to Christ by bringing them into the hearing or the exposure or contact with the gospel. Could be a track, could be radio talk, could be a sermon, could be the Bible. He brings them into contact with the word of God in the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. And he uses that word in and through it to make their dead, unbelieving, hostile hearts awaken and come alive so that they hear and see the gospel of Christ as irresistibly true and beautiful. If you are a Christian today, God called you that way. Could have been when you were six. You weren't conscious of these dynamics at all. You just saw it as beautiful. And you believed it. You've always believed it. It's just been irresistibly. You can't walk away from it. It's too good and beautiful and true. And others of you went through big battles to get there. And there were doubts assailing you. And it took years of warfare in the mind and in the heart. And one day. And I ask you to look back on that day right now. And give an account of what happened. One day. You yielded. And I'm saying that what happened at that moment was Christ became for you, owing to the divine call, irresistibly beautiful, true. God's call is almighty and very different from my call. I'm a preacher. I call you to faith Every week. I call you to love God. I call you to follow Christ. I call you to embrace him. I call you to treasure him. I call you week after week. And that is not the same as the divine call. What's the difference? My call is general. God's call is specific. My call offers hope. God's call creates hope. My call offers life. God's call, in and through mine, gives life. My call commands you to love God. God's call, through mine, grants what he commands. Now, where can we see this in the Bible? Where is this in the Bible? Well, that's some of those texts I don't have time to look at, but we'll look at two. Let's just stay right here and get it from the context. Let's get what I just said from the Bible in verses 29 and 30. So we'll jump ahead and let these verses interpret the call for us. Because verse 29 begins the ground or the reason. You see it in the word for or because in your translation. I hope it's there. If it's not, change translations. For. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. 
You see how the ground is working now. The point of verses 29 and 30 and the rest of the chapter is to give argument and foundation for why you can be sure that the called have everything worked together for their good. Why is it that the called and only the called have everything that worked together for their good? That's what verse 29 and 30 answer. Why is it that the called can be sure that the horrors of their lives will bring them good? Answer, because those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called. In other words, predestination is behind your calling. That's why it's sure. What God destines to happen, happens. You see how the argument works? For the called, everything works together for good. I stopped in the middle. Let's keep reading verse 30. These whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. You've got realities on the backside of your calling and the front side of your calling that are absolutely massive. Before your calling, there are things that happen that secure your calling and its effects. And after your calling, there are things that are secured and happen that secure the significance and long-term effect of your calling. This word calling here is, is sandwiched right in the middle of massive realities. Foreknowing, predestination on one side and justification and glorification on the other side. And here we are right in the middle saying, are you called? Am I called? Because if I'm called, verse 28 says, everything for the rest of my life and on into eternity is going to work for my everlasting good. And so Paul is so jealous that you know you're called and that you know the foundations under the calling and the effects of the calling so that you can revel in it and give your life away to other people so that they can enjoy the calling. Predestination, he says in verse 29, is there underneath this calling. Those whom he predestined, he called. Now, predestined to what? What's predestined mean? To predestined to what? Well, he, he describes it in two ways. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And predestined to be among a group who have Jesus as their big older brother. That's my paraphrase. Isn't that what it says? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. You're destined to be like him and you're destined to be with him as a brotherhood. With him as the big, mighty, exemplary older brother. And everybody who is predestined to experience that gets called. And only those who are predestined to experience that get called. Because everyone who is predestined to experience it is called. Those whom he predestined, he called. Verse 30. And so predestination is a massive, not a marshmallow, but a great rock underneath the promise of verse 28. Not only that, look forward 
Look forward on the other side of calling in verse 30. These whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, all the called are justified and all the justified are glorified. No dropouts. No dropouts. God predestined our Christ-likeness, and to bring it to pass, he called us effectually to himself. And those whom he called, he did what had to be done so that all things could work together for our good because we're all sinners. He justified us. And those whom he justified, no fallout, no dropout, no exceptions. Every one of them gets glorified. That's the good If you ask him, is there a point on the word good in verse 28? All things work together for good. I would say there are three points at least in this text. One is, you're going to be like Jesus. Are you tired of being the way you are? I am. I am so eager to get fixed completely. That's a great incentive to me. It's going to work together for my good. I will be like Jesus too. I will have Jesus as my big older brother forever. I'll be in his family. I'll be among him. I won't be so different from him. He doesn't want me around. I will be like him and he can see his own image reflected back in me. That's number two. And number three, I'm going to be glorified. Shine like the sun in the kingdom of my father so that I'm a suitable reflection of his worth. Those are three goods that all things working together to do for you. There are others, but those are three. All things work together to make you more like Jesus. All things work together to bring you into his brotherly fellowship. All things work together to get you to your glorification. Nobody drops out if they are called. So you need to know if you're called. And if you know you're called, you need to be excited about it and talk about it and describe your conversion that way from time to time. God's calling here, would you agree, is his sovereign action to bring spiritually dead people who are unbelieving and hostile to God, to bring them to spiritual life and faith and love to God. It's God's work. God secures our faith. He secures our love. That's why the qualification, you must love God in order for Romans 8.28, is not a fragile thing after all. Because it's the fruit of our calling. It's, the, it's what we ended on two weeks ago when we referred to Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. I will circumcise their hearts so that they will love me. Circumcision of the heart is what happens in the call of God. And the effect of it is the love that rises in our hearts for Jesus. Here's a good analogy. I've used this many times before. If you're veterans here at Bethlehem, you'll, you'll recognize it. The clearest illustration of the call of God and the nature of the call is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. All right? Lazarus is dead four days in the ground. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He believes on me, though he die, yet shall he live. You believe that, Martha? I believe that in the last day you're going to raise people from the dead. 
Where is he? He stands in front of this tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. That word creates life. And he comes forth. That's the call of God. That's how you got saved. You heard the gospel a thousand times or maybe the first time. The call went in one ear, out the other ear, because it was the general call. It was the Piper call. What can Piper do? Zero. Nothing. I can't save anybody. All I can do is describe Jesus, describe the cross, describe the promises, and then pray. Oh, how we should pray. The Holy Spirit moves in and through the gospel. And he says, David... Sally, Christy, all of you, believers, live. The effect of that supernatural, powerful, irresistible voice is life. And the effect of life is to love God and to trust Jesus. You didn't do this on your own, folks. Give God the glory. Now, let me take a verse from outside Romans 8. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. This is a verse to underline the fact that the call of God is the unique, special, effective work of God through the gospel to save those whom he destined to be conformed to his son. First Corinthians one twenty two. Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Now pause there and, and make sure you get this clear. Here's Paul, like me, preaching the gospel. Preaching the word of God. One group of people, Jews, are by and large saying, stumbling block. You can't have a crucified Messiah. That doesn't fit the Bible. The Messiah doesn't die a common death like a criminal. No way. This can't be true. That's one group. The other group, the Gentiles, say this is foolishness. (laughs) Foolish. This is not Athenian wisdom and philosophical insight. A bloody crucified Christ, to save me, no thank you. That's the response of these two groups. Now, they are all hearing the call of Paul. Now, what happens when God calls? Let's read it. Verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All the Jews were hearing Paul's call. All the Gentiles were hearing Paul's call. Until God worked to call, they were regarding it as foolish and stumbling block. But for some among Jews and Gentiles, the call, God spoke, lived, and the effect Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I saw 
My eyes were opened. My heart was softened. I looked at the cross and it was no longer stupid and foolish and a stumbling block. It was wisdom. It was power. It was my life. You think you did that? You didn't do that. God did that. And let us praise the cross and let us praise the calling and let us praise the grace forever and ever and ever. All things work together for good if you've been called, if that has happened to you. And nothing can stop everything from working together for you if you've been called. God took the initiative to waken you from the dead and grant you to see his son as irresistibly beautiful and wise and powerful and true. And now if he has done that, he will exert all that it takes to work everything together for your everlasting good. That's the logic here. Last question. What's the long-term effect of being called? What's the long-term effect of being called? Answer. Absolute eternal security. Absolute eternal security. Look at verse 30 again. These whom he predestined, so your, your destiny began in eternity. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. No dropouts. The called are justified. The justified are glorified. Therefore, you are absolutely secure forever if you're called. What a purpose. I haven't said anything about it, but I should probably draw your attention to the fact that in that little phrase in verse 28 where it says, All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, is the same as saying, according to his design beforehand, which is predestination. Predestination is the expression of the purpose of God that we be conformed to the image of his Son by virtue of his sovereign, omnipotent, calling power. But now here somebody is going to object and say, and this is a very heartfelt, this is not an academic thing, this is a heartfelt, agonizing Objection, which needs a very careful and pastoral answer. What if I don't last? What if I do give up? What if I grow cold and stop loving God? What if I, I experience such hard things in my life that I stop trusting Him? I just don't believe Him anymore. I once thought I believed Him and I don't believe Him anymore. What about me? Will all things work together for my good? Here's the answer. That won't happen if you're called. And the reason it will not happen, that is the reason you will not fail to be glorified, is not because loving God and trusting Jesus are unimportant and non-essential. That's not the reason. The reason is because he who called you will keep you. And I don't mean keep an unbeliever. I mean keep you believing. Keep you loving. Oh, you'll have battles. Oh, there will be battles. And you will have dark nights of the soul. And you will go through seasons of trembling and doubt. He will not let that remain if you're called. He'll bring you back. 
again and again. Now, let me prove that to you in closing by just showing you three texts where the call of God and the keeping of God are linked together by the faithfulness of God. All right? You need to know this, believer. And unbeliever, you need to want this enough to come on in by faith in Jesus Christ. But believer, you need to know this about yourself so that you can go to bed at night and not be afraid you're going to wake up an unbeliever in the morning. Which you would without God. Jude chapter 1 verse 1. I'll just read them too quickly for you to look them up probably. Jude 1 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. See those three things he says about his audience? You are the called, you are the loved, you are the kept. Just put a big banner over your life today. Called, loved, kept. 1 Corinthians 1.8 God will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the logic there? God will confirm you to the end, present you blameless before Jesus because He's called you. And if He's called you, He'll keep you. He is faithful. Faithful means the called are kept. Now, why is that? It's because we were called according to a purpose. And God's purposes always happen. That's the meaning of his faithfulness. I am faithful to my purposes and you are called according to a purpose and therefore my faithfulness guarantees the called will be kept. Nobody will be lost who's called. One last verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as if not to want to leave them with just a blessing, he puts this foundation under it. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. May he keep you. Pure at the day of Christ, he who... Now, he could have just said, he is faithful, he'll keep you. But he links it with calling. It's because calling is the divine work that expresses the predestining purpose for you. And if he's expressed that purpose for you and in you, he is obligated to keep you. That's his faithfulness to his own purpose and calling. He who called you is faithful, he will do it. Well, we have now begun to see not the marshmallow under the promise of Romans 8.28, but the massive foundation that is deeper than anybody knows. God loves to make promises to his people. He makes absolutely spectacular promises, promises that are simply unbelievable unless... There is under them something like this. 
Because you know good and well when you walk out of here, what you're going to face today, tomorrow, and ten years from now is going to be so hard to believe as good for you that if you don't have a foundation under you that says, I have called you by virtue of foreknowledge and predestination. And if I've called you, I've justified you. You know, I should say at this point, if all the called are justified, you do see, don't you, that only faith justifies and therefore the call secures the faith. All the called are justified. Not some of the called are justified. All the called are justified. But justification is by faith alone and not without faith. Therefore, the calling must guarantee and secure, indeed, I would say, create the faith that justifies. All the called are justified and all the justified are glorified. Nobody becomes unjustified once they're justified because God keeps us in faith. So, I end where I ended last week. Go take some risks, Christian. Go take some risks in the cause of evangelism and missions and justice and all the perils of loving people. Got a hard phone call you need to make? Because love demands it. There are perils in that call, aren't there? The person on the other end could hang up on you. Or they could lay into you. Or they could make fun of you. Or they could accuse you of hypocrisy because you took so long to call them. The perils of love. Bank on this promise. That call and that response, whatever it is, will work for your good. Now, I'm going to close with a a doxology and a benediction which captures this truth that he who called you will keep you. And if he keeps you, all things will work together for your good. So um, why don't you stand to receive the benediction? And you'll recognize it. It's a great, big, powerful, biblical Jude 25 doxology and benediction. And you just look at me. You don't close your eyes in benedictions. You look at the benedictor who is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ and you receive it by the power of the Holy Spirit as something God wants to do in and through me and you. And now, unto him who is able to keep, keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of His glory with joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. May the Lord do it. You're dismissed.